From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hey everyone, Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazine, the monthly and quarterly. Our guest this episode, and I think you're going to, no, I guarantee you will love this conversation, have Mimi Later, the director and executive producer of The Morning Show, talking about her brilliant career, and not just working with Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston on The Morning Show, but some of her other projects, especially um, on the basis of sex, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Anyway, strap yourselves in. It's going to be fun. Hi, Mimi. Thanks for joining me. Hello, Brett. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. I'm very excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really, I don't even know where to start. I don't want to give away too much about season three, but um, and I also don't like to have too much of a timeline about, you know, the episodes because they do have a long shelf life, but viewers are in for a real treat this is quite a ride this coming season yeah it was a ride it was it was really fantastic to work on this season and see it come to life uh it it uh you know first season was dealing with uh sexual assault me too Mm -hmm. movement second season dealing with covid and you know coming out of that which we're still sort of in and then our focus this season was you know, women's agency and reproductive rights, um, minority rule, billionaires, um, Supreme Court. Big tech. Big tech. And the state of the truth, the big yeah. lie, um, and also the uh, threat to all journalists. Uh, yeah, the fourth estate under fire. Yeah, all around the world. And so the state of the truth. Yeah. And all our characters have a lot of secrets. <laughs> Well, that's one thing I love about the show is the moral complexity. There's no cutouts. There's no, it's not allegorical. These are like real people. Yeah, real people, really flawed people who have very high paying jobs and sometimes are super ridiculous people. And, you know, we like to have fun. We like to find a lot of it through the humor. And we cross this line all the time of trying to find the humor and but it's really, the show's really about something, something that matters. Yeah. Well, I particularly, I'm sure you get the Aaron Sorkin comparison from time to time. Yeah. Because of the, the articulateness, the, the, the incredible fluency of the dialogue. But I don't know whether you'll take this, how, how this will hit, but I see David Milch in there sometimes. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? I do, since I've worked with David Milch. Um, uh, yeah. The last time was on Luck. I oh, sh- yeah, I with di- Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, I directed the finale. Oh, and, wow. And it was really an incredible experience. Yeah. Well, I, to me, it's the crooked timber. I mean, these characters, with their flaws, they're still so human. You can't help but relate to them. Absolutely, especially those degenerate gamblers. Uh, oh, wow. I read his memoir that he wrote on his... As uh, you know, after he got his diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and and the brutality of his vulnerability was just almost unbearable. Unbearable, and from such a brilliant mind. Yeah, uh, to, to lose something that was just such a treasure. Yeah, it was, you know, magical. The words that came out of that man's mind, and I, it's the world is cruel. 
Yeah. <laughs> and we have I to wonder, survive it somehow. I wonder about the gambling because I see some parallels with like Dostoevsky because he was a degenerate <laughs> gambler as well. Well, yeah. And I think there's something about that being on the edge like that, just every roll of the dice, just chance and fate and luck and just going for it and picking yourself back up again. And I don't know what it is. I feel like that's part of the secret to what made him so great. And it's not about David Milch. I also want to talk about Norm MacDonald because he did a memoir too of his ah. last days. And he also has a very, you know, similar track because he was also a degenerate gambler. Yeah. Wow. I have to read that. Oh, it's hysterical. But it's really something knowing a person before their mind goes. Yeah. You know, how how does a mind just disappear, you know, with so much? And it just tells us we have to take care of our brains, that mm -hmm. spaghetti between our ears and the wetware <laughs> and you know there's we have to take care of our brains our mental health and i mean alzheimer's a incredibly cruel disease yeah that especially um, for the the loved ones i think yes people around it and to watch such a such clarity get tangled up in just clouds of forgetfulness that's tragic it, it really is a, yeah a, but anyway, Tragic. I just, I just really, um, I saw that. I'm not sure. Different little glints of character. Go, oh yeah, well that's, that is, that's like a Milchian view of things. Like that, how he expresses his affection through people through their flaws, like their weaknesses. Yeah, I think <clears> our Corey character. Uh, what, is... what Billy Crudup is just <laughs> such a great actor. He's just the energy just fantastic he's an extraordinary actor an extraordinary human being he's a real mensch and he um his character is always rolling the dice you know yeah. he's always seeking um something bigger and better and he really well, he, wants he to came win. into the show with a mission he was yeah. really going to shake things up and he's going to figure out how to clear a path through the forest of of confusion and and save the legacy media and uh yeah really it's just that his journey was really fun to to go along with like absolutely um he uh you know he wants to win he discovers that it's not so fun to be the ceo anymore <laughs> you know and then, didn't take him long yeah. as i recall season one he was pretty much by the end of the first episode like what did i get myself into here yeah i yeah. think dealing with the personalities because everybody's so big so many big personalities yeah and you know nobody can say those lines like like billy and mm -hmm. no one can write them um I mean, not anyone can write them. They are mm -hmm. tricky, and it's really fun when we're when we're mixing and we're fixing a line, whatever. So oftentimes we're on a loop, you know, mm -hmm. um, with a line, and you can hear it ten, fifteen times and laugh every time yeah. Billy Crudup <laughs> says a line because um, he says it so brilliantly. Yeah, he's a good audience proxy. I feel the character for for viewers to yeah. kind of get get into the show and who he's dealing with and the rest he's good good stand in yeah for us yeah. very really. very astute mm -hmm. observation so um 
coming up pretty soon, I guess, a couple weeks. Yeah, huh? September 13th, uh, it drops. And, you know, it's been a very interesting season because of the strike. And normally there's, you know, I normally do quite a bit of... Um, junkets. And, junkets and stuff. Yeah. And this season, you know, we we actually are having a junket. And because our the DGA has settled their deal, I can speak to the press. And... It's kind of lonely uh, without your without co-stars. Without, uh, co-stars without Charlotte Stoud, who wrote the season, this season three with her merry band of wonderful writers, and so it's been kind of lonely, but and odd mm-hmm. because you know it's really fun to hear from the actors, their point of view. Yeah, but it must feel like an echo chamber, huh? Yeah, it's an echo yeah. chamber. That's really true. Um, Anyway, it's going to drop, and I'm really excited about it, and I think it's a really smart season, and um, Mm -hmm. I'm really hopeful that people respond to it. Yeah, well, I'd like to talk about how the show came together. I know it's been guest dating for a long time, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. but it wasn't it, I mean, just the idea of this framing device or this, this narrative structure to tell all the stories that are going on about everything. Okay. I mean, all like you mentioned, Me Too, and and uh, you know, COVID and everything else, which I thought was great. Some of it was kind of painful to watch, like it was Jennifer's painful. role in that that in the second season. She's yeah, well, you wow. know, it must have taken a toll on her. I must have mean it did. Really it wore her out. She said, "I don't want to cry anymore, no. <laughs> or yell, or scream." Uh, in season three because she cried all through season two and it was really interesting we started shooting season two before COVID started hmm. we were 13 days into filming we had about I don't know seven or eight scripts we shoot 10 and COVID happened and then they all went out the window and they we threw them all out you were able to keep some bits of it right when some of the character much. arcs and stuff a no? little bit here and there yeah. but we threw good it lines. out yeah good lines we kept the good lines and and uh, we threw it out we all sh- we shut the show down. We were the first to shut it down because it was a frightening experience. Starting to, f- you know, we were filming and COVID was happening. And what is COVID? What is this mm-hmm. virus? And um, we shut it down. And then we developed it and and worked it around COVID, the unknown. Yeah. Well, just the not knowing, the dread. Yeah. Yeah. That took took. And it's amazing how fast we've got that in the rearview mirror because it just, I don't know, it was was bizarre. I didn't know what was going to happen. It felt like the world was coming to an end. It did. It felt like, are we going to die tomorrow? Are we going to die? You know, and still long COVID, they don't know really how to treat it. And so how far is it in the rearview window when... You know, we we hear, okay, there's a new vaccine coming. we got to take mm-hmm. that in September because it's not gone. But a lot of people think it is. It's very confusing, and I think it changed and isolated a ton of people. Yeah, it there's, a, there's a human forever. cost, societal cost, too. I think. Absolutely. So how easily it was able to be demagogued, which is a little yes. scary for me. I just, people that I would have never suspected that, you know, and it's like, what do they call that horseshoe theory? Some of the people are so far into new age, you know, mysticism and holistic health. And, you know, like my cousins, the anti-government, a uh, thousand right. rounds of ammunition in their backyard. And all of a sudden they're just right together. Yeah, that is 
that is freaking scary. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, all of a sudden people you thought were your friends. No, they they're still really, my friends. I, they, I don't. Friends, I yes. Like, we, you keep away from certain topics or you, yeah. you bust their chops about it a little bit maybe. Yeah. 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 I have a few friends like that. Yeah. And I know some people like my brothers who don't really believe all that, but it's fun to poke and tease people with it, you know? Yeah. It's, they live for uh, liberal tears. It's like the sweetest nectar of all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So um, tell us about getting the show made because that, wasn't it? I think it was uh, Brian Stetler, right? Didn't he write a book? Stelter, yeah. Stel- Stel- Top Stel- of the, Stelter. Stelter. Uh, he wrote, you know, former CNN um, anchor, wrote a book called Top of the Morning. And I had actually just finished directing and producing a show called The Leftovers, which is one of my most proud moments and life-changing experiences. And I had worked with Michael Ellenberg, who was the head of drama at HBO. And he he called me and said, let's go have dinner. I've got this book. I want you to produce it and direct it and produce it with me. And, you know, Jen Aniston and Reese Witherspoon are interested and Hmm. it had not been sold yet and I was about to go off and direct on the basis of sex and I said I'm in there was no script Um, I just loved the behind the scenes uh, machinations of how television is made who how you wake up in the morning with these people um, what's on screen what's off screen the real and yeah. the not real and and so I went off and made the movie he sold it and Reese and Jen you know attached themselves and so we got to work and uh, created the show and Carrie Aaron wrote it mm-hmm. and produced it uh, alongside myself Michael Ellenberg Jen Anston Reese Witherspoon and their partners Kristen Hahn and Laura, Lauren Neustadter. And so creating a show from the bottom up is yeah. like building a barn. It's, you know, the walls have to go in a certain way. You've got to have a good foundation. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Carrie took a good stab at, at, at it. And, you know, the book was more like a, here's the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she took it to the next level. And... You know, so creating this world, you know, you hire an incredible production designer and oh, costume wow. the sets designer. Oh, so beautiful. Thank Everything you. is just the design. Yeah, I love a good design. And when I see that, it just like draws you into the story more because there's fewer distractions. It sets the tone and then you're in it. It's a character. Yeah. And John Pano was our original production designer. And then Nelson Coates, who I've made many who I made on the basis of sex, many pilots and other films with him, uh, took over seasons two and three and just created such an incredible world of, uh, in which to work in. And, you know, color palette, everything is discussed. Mm -hmm. Every detail, every rock is turned over. Mm -hmm. Um, you you can, it, it shows. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, just the color palette of, you know, when we're on the air, we wanted it to be bright and mm-hmm. happy and like when you see morning cheerful. shows, cheerful, mm-hmm. hopeful. And then when the lights go off, it's you the know. muted colors and the yeah. neutral palettes and yeah. And also the contrasting 
of light and dark, mm-hmm. you know, as people walk in and out of shadows and as mm-hmm. it reflects their lives, uh, where the head's at, yeah. what, what turmoil they're involved in. Anyway, it's, so you, you don't create it by yourself. You have a vision of what it looks like, what it feels like, what it tastes like, and then you hire these incredible artists to work alongside you to create this world. And well, I, I love exhausting. the behind. I love just like the little details of like the alarm clocks and get the drivers getting them to the to the office and oh yeah, and the break rooms and the sidebar discussions and you know when not just the tension and the high stakes, but yeah. just the little human interactions. All the details, mm-hmm. yeah, all the little moments are. It's everything that's between the lines that I'm interested in. And actually, when we went and looked, when we went to the morning, uh, we went to, you know, Good Day LA and the Today Show in New York, Mm -hmm. just to walk the halls, see how small those rooms really are. Those dressing rooms are tiny. And, you know, you have to shoot in them. But we made them pretty tiny, but you have to film in them and you need a little bit more space. And just walking along the hallway, seeing all the cables, how they routed the cables through the building. Yeah. it, it's fascinating to create a world and to go into um, the world of live television, live television news, and watching the director work, the producer, all the technicians, and, you know, we tried to get it right. I think we've got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah, know, what we, kind of feedback do you get from the real morning show people when you're doing get, your PR and stuff? I bet they have some, I bet they have some they interesting discussions, yeah. They absolutely love it, and, you know, we have researchers and consultants mm-hmm. um, to make sure we're doing it correctly. Verisimilitude. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a very important. It's amazing how a little thing will take you completely out of a show. Because I love fishing, and I'll see somebody, like, using a spinning rod in some obvious, you know, <laughs> wrong situation or some big old fat lure when they should be using, you know, something complete, the rigs and the tackle and stuff. And I go, like, oh, man. Yeah. I was enjoying the story, and now I'm, like, pulled out of it. Now exactly. it's all I can think of. It, everything to the microphone that the actor is wearing on, on camera and um, the headset, how it's worn. Yeah. Every little detail is mind. Yeah. Well, just that, just that, because um, design is a is a character. It is Absolutely. an important character. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's How, one that people are playing. The actors are playing off against it all the time. Absolutely. It's like putting on the pants or putting on the dress. Uh-huh. You know, mm-hmm. an actor puts on a a dress, and all of a sudden, they they put on those pairs of the shoes, and they walk it they talk it and all of a sudden it it is it helps them become who they are and you know jen's character alex wears these blacks and grays Mm -hmm. and these sort of camel colors and very sleek um reese's character bradley does a little bit more floral and Mm -hmm. her her character her costumes have Evolved as her character has evolved. Yeah, they really have. I'm just just noticing that. Yeah, I'm gonna go back and take a look now because she came from, you know, that I know some of these people in the work in these byway stations. You know, the yeah. 740th ranking right. station or whatever, and 
They don't get paid a lot of money. They get thrown into these situations where they got to make stories up out of practically nothing. Yes. They're doing like duck parades and stuff. And then yet there's real news that's got to be covered. And how do you do it with no resources and stuff? They have to be tremendously adaptive and innovative. Yes. And throwing her from, you know, right into the frying pan like that was great setup for so for the whole show. Really. Great drama. Yeah. And, yeah. uh. You know, it's it's really interesting um, how the character, you know, how the writer writes, and their writing leaves little breadcrumbs as to what's next. Mm-hmm. They may not even know what's next, mm-hmm. and neither does the character, the actor, but they're creating that world. Um, and in the third season, Charlotte Stoud took over as our showrunner writer, and you know, really was able to capture their voices and did a beautiful job writing the season. Yeah, it was really quite, quite <laughs> the stakes, you know. Yeah, the stakes the are tension. High. Yeah. It's a, it is. It's like almost uncomfortable, but you can't, can't look away. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, how is it episodic versus, you know, kind of a binge-worthy show? Because this is, comes out every week, right? Yeah, we're going to drop two episodes, the first two, and then... Every week, one episode. Yeah. Was that always the plan? Yeah. Yeah. I think the first season we dropped three, and then the second season two, and now this season two. It kind of mm. makes your mouth, you know, water and makes you want more. Yeah. You don't want people to just run through it in the weekend, like, you know, what was those shows? Uh, Severance? or There were a lot of shows I watched. I can't even remember now, but... You know, some shows are fun to watch, binge watch. Mm-hmm. You know, like I binge watched Breaking Bad in five weeks. Yeah. It was during the... I've been through it three times. Right, during the pandemic. I just, we just went crazy because we were locked in and we just mm-hmm. would watch five shows a, a day. And it was like, we were drugged from the... Saturation. Saturation of it. It was extraordinary. And But, you know, some shows you need to really sit with, digest... And let them sit mm-hmm. with you, and I and mean, also just have other people to talk it over with. And yeah, which is they the notice and you didn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, the wire was the one for me because I'd seen that yeah. you know all the way through, fifteen years ago or something. Yeah, and I was how is that going to hold up? It held up. It yeah, held up really. One of well. the greatest shows ever made. It really holds up well. Yeah, it's almost Deadwoodian levels. Yes, Deadwood, Deadwood is the best show ever made. I, I know. I I was a huge fan. Of Deadwood, wow. Just the language. Ian McShane. Oh, my God. I don't God. know if anybody will ever be able to write another, to match up an actor with a character like that. Yeah. Wow. Pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. So uh, working with Apple, I wanted to ask how how that came about. How did they get on board, and what was the – were there other other studios you were talking to? Yeah. And, well, there are other studios vying for it, and Apple um, was the one, and it's their flagship show. And, I mean, it is like working with any other studio – uh, in or network in the fact that they yes they do give notes yeah they, the suits show up with the notes well it's more like um, yeah it's more like you pitch the season to them mm-hmm. and they weigh in on yeah. whether they want that to happen or not and then if you really are and if there is a disagreement there really is discussion there really is mm-hmm. um you know, like we really wanted to do abortion rights 
this were, season. They were a little worried about and that. And they were concerned about it. They were worried. And look what happened. Charlotte Stoud gave Bradley her storyline before the row leak. Yeah. And, I mean, it was actually the seeds were planted in season one by, by Carrie when Bradley blurts out in the middle of a broadcast that she had an abortion when she was 15. And so those seeds were planted, and it was really important to do that this year, not knowing what was going to happen with yeah, Roe, well, and then it happened. Remember, a lot of the commentary after Dobbs was, oh, people will forget about this in a couple of weeks. It's not going to impact the midterm elections. Oh, boy. Yeah, I was, like, so glad to, to have that proved wrong. Yeah, I for sure. I think it's, like, we're, we're at a hinge point, and... It just feels like, I don't know, I'm not sure who we are as a people anymore. I'm not as. sure either. I'm not sure about our world and who we are and what we're going to be if we're going to survive it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, are we going to survive climate change or is it going to survive us? Yeah, you know? and other things we're not even looking at. Like with the writer strike and actors. I'm, oh, my God. I was, you know, you got, I had Hawk uh, Koch. I, I, I worked with Hawk a long time ago. Yeah. He lives well, here, right? Oh, yeah. He was, uh, the <laughs> episode, find, uh, the, like one or two episodes ago, he was on, and we had a great talk. But with it, you see this, you know, the money and the talent and the money and the creativity and the, and the money. Was, blah, 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 the trade-offs have been going on forever. Meanwhile, big tech is just coming in like this iceberg. Yeah. I just wonder if people are missing the point, like... Absolutely, people are missing the point. Um, in our show, Paul... Um, John Hamm comes in as an accelerant. He makes everybody look mm-hmm. at who they are and take sides. And, you know, he's not what he seems to be. A big savior is coming in with all the money. Yeah. And money, is money going to save our souls? Yeah. I well, think I think, so. like, um, I have to say I was a little worried about Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. I think that experiment's more or less paid off. I mean, mm-hmm. they've they've made the transition to good, you know, solid foundation of, you know, a national organ, like yes. the New York Times, mm-hmm. without a lot of interference for him or becoming like some kind of house newsletter for Amazon products or something like people were saying. Sure. But I think it's just because in his portfolio, that's a very tiny portion of it. Exactly. Like the television and film business is for Apple. Yeah. Right? They sell iPads, phones, three trillion dollar company. That's right. That's, That's unbelievable. Right. I don't know what they are today, but they did hit three trillion at one point. I'm sure it's much more now. Oh my god! That was a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah. So when you're asking for more money for <clears throat> different, uh, you know, scripts and design <laughs> and stuff, you you must be like, come on, like, yeah, come on, people. We do say things like that to ourselves, but you know, we do have try a to budget. keep it away from them. Yeah, know? we do have a budget. And we do have to stick with it. And sometimes, and most times, that is super challenging. But sometimes when you do, we do not have a limited budget. We have a big budget. But there's always a way to make, to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you don't have the money, it is, forces you to really think, how do I get this shot? How do I make this mm-hmm. work? How do I, <clears throat> in this one frame, make you feel something? You know, and that's what's exciting and challenging. Always. Yeah. Well, we're, we're talking with Hawk. He's, you know, he grew up on movie sets and his dad doing a, not Bo Jest, but some French Foreign Legion yeah. <clears throat> film out in, out in 
you know, Indio or somewhere, sand dunes, and how they, you know, have the have the uh, Mahdi and his, uh, you know, their scimitars coming over the hill, and and yeah. then they then they change uniforms, and then they French foreign <laughs> legions, and then they'll do another batch. So they're mixing them all together with the splicings to make it look like here's hundreds and hundreds of people, and it's like thirty or something. Yeah. It's sort of like that with CGI now, today. Yeah. You, like in the second season of the morning show, since we're talking about the morning show, we did New Year's Eve, you know, right before COVID began. And I had 150 extras that I tiled. It's called tiling. You shoot them in different angles, and then you they are put in, in layers and layers and layers. And um, it's quite a feat mm-hmm. and it was really interesting because it was COVID and we didn't know what the hell was happening and none of us had been vaccinated we were all masked and mm-hmm. you name it you know we we were we we did an enormous enormous amount of testing so did every show yeah. that was on they spent we spent so much money testing it was it was insane but also mm-hmm. kept us safe and alive um you know so we had these extras that were unmasked and then the ones that were a little further back would have the their scarves covering their mouths, mm-hmm. and even though we're outside, anyway, it was pretty fascinating how yeah. we do things, how yeah. we create like worlds. <clears throat> the inventiveness. Yeah. Because sometimes you know you figure, like Darren Aronofsky made pie for like eight thousand dollars, <laughs> and then he gave him a hundred million dollars to make Noah with Russell Crowe, which I thought was actually a pretty good movie. Yeah. But it it changes something, doesn't it? It does. Money, uh, money really changes everything um, yeah. in our lives. Um, it's. I've never. I would never. I will have no experience of that. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it. It does. I mean, good and bad. Mostly yeah. bad. Yeah. Um, because when the world is not equal and and our country is so divided, mm. it's not. It's. It's. There's a. There's a health risk. A moral health risk. A moral risk. health risk yeah. to the country, and that's where we are at right now. Well, I think universal service of some kind, that's my... That's, that's the my, thing, yeah. I think so, yeah. And just talking about that. One of the other guests a while ago, like I was in the service six years. That was what people did where I grew up. There's right. no, You didn't go to college. You went into the service. service. Then if you couldn't go to college then. Yeah. But people don't have that anymore. You know, they don't have that... I think two years it can be, you know, Civilian Conservation Corps or something just for people from different backgrounds to be able to mix. We're so hunkered down in our own little silos. It's just Everybody's really Everybody's afraid. Scary. Mm-hmm. Everybody is scared to death, but actually service is what keeps you alive and keeps you um, keeps you strong, keeps you relevant. Yeah, I think it's a basic the architecture of humanity goes through, you know, we're, we're social creatures yeah. serving each other. That's how we survive. That's and that's how, how COVID screwed up everybody and mm-hmm. everyone was alone and you yeah. couldn't hug, you couldn't touch, you couldn't um, communicate in the way humans communicate. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very debilitating. And Now, you were in the crushing. middle of a big big project like that it must have been like just from you know blowing and going to boom abrupt stop right and and also when we started filming 
we were tested eight days, eight times a week, not eight days a week, <laughs> eight you know, with PCRs and rapids, and wore all the paraphernalia. Point is, is that everything was locked down in the city, and we'd go to work, and in L.A., you could drive anywhere in 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 minutes, in, in minutes yeah. and get there. And the point <clears throat> is, we'd be at first very frightened to. We'd have A unit, B unit, or mm-hmm. A zone, B zone, meaning we had to keep in our zones. We had to keep our distance. We couldn't hug. But we were working, and our minds were working. They were not focused on COVID. They were focused on the story. Yeah. And it was a very interesting thing that happened where I was able to go to work, and I was able to really function and be in my creative mind. But I'd come home, and my husband, who's an actor and writer he was more much more isolated than I my family we couldn't mm-hmm. like hang out until we learned how to do that and so I was with my other family uh, your set family my or? set family it was just a really awkward and strange and um, emotional time I think for the world yeah do you sure. feel like it added to the show though like the complexity of dealing with it it felt to me like it you handled it pretty well. Yeah, I think it it yeah. did. You know, we were, you know, telling a story that we were living through. It was very strange and weird. And yeah, well, to have that ability to express that probably was helpful. Yeah, it was like going to therapy. Yeah. It really was. It was therapeutic. Yeah, and you, did the actors feel that too? Well, I mean, to I think I, you know, mentioned... Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston are just at the top of their game, and just to—they really just are. <laughs> them to, I mean, they're just so watchable. And together, they're incredible. Yeah, it's and, synergy. I mean, they have a beautiful chemistry, and have they worked together before? I, I yes, should probably know. She I'm, was um, Reese played Jen's little sister on Friends. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, not on a regular. I think it was yeah, a short arc. Character, yeah, you know. a recurring character, and so they've known each other for years. And yeah. those two ladies are at the top of their game. They are so focused. They really come in, and they, they have know dif- their lines and they, they hit they, their marks. And they know everything. And yeah. but they still need direction. They still need to guide. They still mm-hmm. need love and uh, <laughs> guidance and occasional hand holding. Yeah, but. And it's really interesting. Actors are such beautiful creatures and such beautiful humans, and mostly, for the most part, really you better smart. Better say that. Maybe. No, but it's really true. <laughs> and it's really interesting. That a lot of actors have different styles. Mm-hmm. Like they like to, they get it on the third take. They're done after take one. They're they've really come in prepared. But sometimes, an actor will come in and need to work it through on mm-hmm. the floor. Yeah. To, to get there. And so it's it's exciting working with different actors who have different ways of finding the character, finding the moment in that scene um, and making it real. So it's, it's, it's exciting, uh, yeah. directing, acting. Well, one of the things that always producing. just, there's a lot of Hollywood people in Ojai, a lot of industry. Yeah. And the small townness of it like you think of hollywood as being this, the america's largest cultural export and it's just everywhere in nepal and uh, sub-saharan africa and little villages in china it's, yeah. it's everywhere but it's only really like 
how many above the line people? Ten or twelve thousand? Really? It is a small town. It is a small town. It's it's a you know, it's a small town. I mean the it's it's fascinating how um, right now we are in this really important change that needs to happen yeah. within our guilds um, for fair for fair wage. Streaming is just so unprecedented; it'd just be hard to know. It really is. Well, you know, having been in the industry for many many years, our residuals used to be huge mm-hmm. um, before streaming came along. No, you don't know. They don't share numbers. They don't. don't have any way of knowing. It's a black box. Yes. So all the things that we're fighting for are extremely relevant yeah. and extremely important. And as you can see, when everything is shut down, like our show is coming out, and a lot of the shows that were made last year are mm-hmm. coming out. Next year, we are going to be empty. <laughs> the product, uh, yeah. the inventory is going to be a bare shell, just That's like the right. early days of the pandemic. That's right. It's going to be slim pickings. Yeah. So and is this good timing now as far as like exposure? Do you feel like coming out now when, I don't know, even know what I'm trying to say, like the, you know, is you're in this like zone where there isn't much new material coming out. No, like we shut down. I mean, we, uh, we finished the filming on February 9th. And um, shortly thereafter, there was a strike. Yeah. And I remained. My union settled, made their deal, and I remained. Well, I'm in. I'm in charge of post anyway. Yeah. And so I remained working. I'm still working yeah. to finish the show for the September 13th drop. And um, so I've remained working, um, finishing the show, but. Most the show the, the town is shut down. Nothing is happening, and so we don't have a season four yet. Even yeah, we on can't paper. even talk about it. You can't do table reads or anything. There's or nothing. nothing. It doesn't yeah. exist yet. And it's not just you know the the talent, but there's like these restaurants and hotels oh. and uh, yes, all that the businesses. On yeah, the ripple effect of these strikes is really profound. So many restaurants and businesses have shut down already because oh. of this, and it's hurting the economy. It's hurting, and I hope the AMTP comes to its senses and makes a fair deal yeah. with the writers and the actors because um, they need to. They have to. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. Well, everything is downstream of culture. <laughs> you're creating the yes. culture of the politics and the way we live our lives and the products on our shelves. Everything else is just, you know, starts there. That's like the fountain. Yeah, that's yeah. so well said. Hmm. Was that me that said that? Wow. That's you, the writer, <laughs> the writer over there. Yeah. So um, can you talk about any other projects you're working on now? Anything exciting that's yeah. coming off the shelves maybe? Yeah. I wrote a screenplay with my brother Ruben Leader and my niece Stephanie Leader. Hmm. Ruben is a writer, novelist, um, whose first book is called You Might Feel a Little Prick. And <laughs> <laughs> you should pick it up and I'll get it for you. It's a wonderful condemnation on the medical profession, but it's a very dark comedy about <laughs> survival. <laughs> and um, anyway, he used to be the head writer of first Magnum P.I. and and had a very long career in television, network television. And my niece Stephanie is a comedy writer. And your daughter Hannah's on the morning show. 
my daughter Hannah Very is cool. on the morning show, and she has a really oh you saw her yes yeah, she's uh, mm-hmm. got a she's um, I really can't say right no I don't uh, want to blow no. it but she's uh, has a wonderful she's been in it since the beginning she plays mm-hmm. Jen's assistant and she has a more significant role this season and mm-hmm. she's incredible yeah no yeah. she's my daughter but she's a great actress and she's a great director and writer she and her creative partner Alexander Kochev were these young filmmakers and they said no one's gonna buy our script so they went out and co-directed co-wrote co-starred and were the crew and made this film called The Planters and in 2019 it won all these festivals the Rain Dance Film Festival the most the largest independent film festival in the UK the Austin Film Festival the Nashville Film Festival just keep winning best of the fest and they sold the film to 1091 and it's on Amazon and Apple TV Plus Mm. and it's on a bunch of other stations and it's really an incredible little film and I'm really proud of my daughter because she has her own unique voice and and now she's a mother Mm. and I'm a grandmother and I mean I'm a grandmother before that too yeah Yeah. so it's I'll tell you taking care of a kid today (laughs) is much harder than directing a crew Mm. of 200 people I'll tell you that anyway how old is your grand? My grandson is two. Oh no! That's I know. Terrifying. It's terrifying. And then I have also I have a grand, my stepdaughter. I have a grandson who's eleven and a oh, granddaughter who's better. eight. Now yeah. they're really those are great like, ages. Yeah, they don't scream across the table when they want a banana, and yeah. you know, or they don't run up to the edge of the waterfall like, "Well, like, it's over the edge," and jump off. Yeah, yeah it's or really stick their terrifying. tongue in an electrical socket. Yeah, yeah, but he's so joyful. I mean, he has the terrible twos, but it's also a, a stream of laughter and joy. Yeah, which I'm really into. But it well, is I hard. Have a theory that people or that kids between the ages of three and eight are the funniest human beings. Yeah, yeah. it's true. The, he you makes know, me so laugh. So people say, oh, well, you know, enjoy it. You know, I say, write it down. They write so many funny stuff. They do. Yeah. To get back to what I'm doing, my... Oh, so we wrote it. No, no, we wrote a screenplay. My father was a low-budget, independent B-movie maker. Nice, from like the Roger 60s, Corman. Yes, from the 60s to the early 90s. And he won the Santa Barbara Film Festival mm-hmm. uh, in its first year of... Um, in his first year for the best of the fest. And he used to make these B-movies, but they had a message. So Hmm. we grew up in a family of filmmakers. My mother is a survivor of Auschwitz and three other concentration camps and the death march. Does she have the tattoos? Yes, she did. And so I had this combination of parents of this, my father who was a filmmaker and my mother who was a survivor of of the worst imaginable... uh, imprisonment and you know humanity stripped away anyway so I grew up in this world and so we wrote this script about growing up in this world and um, I hope to make it um, very soon very shortly Mm -hmm. it's 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 called I Dismember Papa that's the title of it now I Dismember Papa because he wrote this B movie a million years ago called I dismember Mama. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is your revenge. It's Turn our revenge about. and love love letter to yeah. him, and it's about making 
a movie with your family and the family you make when you make a movie. Oh, yeah. And it's very mm-hmm. day for night. And if it could only be like a half as good as that movie, I'll be very happy. Yeah. And which still holds up today. So day that's one night. of my. Oh, oh you have to see it. That's one of my uh, most wonderful favorite films. And anyway, that's something I have in the either however long the strike goes on. I might Hopefully be not past October, right? Isn't there God, supposed I hope to be not some past kind of October. A, yeah, there's supposed to be some, hopefully, some people going to get their heads together and start knocking. I have a friend who was uh, head of the negotiator for SAG-AFTRA, and then before that, radios. He'd been through like wow. three or four strikes. He died 10, 12 years ago. Mm. But in those days, it was Lou Wasserman. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, once you got past Lou, it was done. He would make things happen. That's right. There's no Lou Wasserman's anymore. No, it's like, who's going to go in there and fix it and change it? You keep thinking someone's going to emerge and say, okay, let's do this. Yeah. But um, it seems to be that, you know, look, nobody knows what's ha- what's going to happen, right? Didn't William Goldman say? Uh, nobody knows nothing. Nobody knows anything, yeah. right? <laughs> and so we'll see. I'm hoping it's the October you know, we have a season to write and then get working on. And yeah. and um, I may be able to make my little indie film in between all that. Yeah. I'm hoping. Are you going to shoot I, any of it in Ojai? I'd love to shoot it all in Ojai, but it takes place in Hollywood. Oh. But I do think often about shooting here. I mean, I did. I do love that little film that Charlie McDowell, McDowell made with the, Mark Duplass. Yeah, and Elizabeth Moss. Yeah. I and can't was, remember the name now. It's a great title. Yeah, it was a good little movie. Yeah, it was fun. And so I do love seeing people running through the groves. Mm-hmm. And and at, having lunch at Bonnie Lou's diner. I know, right? <laughs> so cool. And now there's Rory's. Yeah. And Osceola. I mean, there's some sweet places here. Mm-hmm. I love it up here. Oh, my God. Like, there's no, never. I've always lived in small towns, and it's just unimaginable. No, no place even close to this. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just lovely. It's really special here. And I think about why is that? I think, you know, it's the astonishing natural beauty is a big part of it, but I think it's there's an intention here that always has been. Mm-hmm. I feel from the earliest days we go, you know, through the, you know, the archaeological sites are many here and mm-hmm. keep keep a low profile on them, but... It's been a place people have just sought out. It's not like they just haphazardly came here, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And that, it's, you know, we had a great story in a couple issues ago about Franklin Lacey, who was just a teacher at Happy Valley School, but he wrote the libretto or the book for um, Music Man. Oh, my God. And they still wow. getting royalties from that for the show. I mean, they were getting big checks with uh, Hugh Jackman and uh, yeah. Button, Sutton, Sutton. It's Foster. Sutton Foster, yeah. yeah. So... The little things about that go on in this town that you just like ripple outwards into the world. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Yeah, it's true. How many other towns of seventy four hundred people have those kind of you know stories? It's true. It's true. I love reading your stories. I learn things every time. Oh, thank you. I really do. Yeah, I learn things every time too. That's part of why I love my job so much. Right. Yeah. It's like. How long have you lived here? 23 years now, 24 mm. years, yeah. But I've lived in places like Safford, Arizona, and Bisbee, Arizona, and, you know, this little town in England where I was at mm. that was just, you know, very charming, but 
kind of backwater and you know these these nothing with the sophistication of Ojai. So yes. For me, I was like way over my head, but people here they they lift you up, you know. That's true. Yeah. When's the theater opening? That is the eternal question. I'm trying to get uh, David Berger to come on the podcast. David, if you're listening, I know you do listen. So people want to know because it's like such a key part of the town. That was my most fun like volunteer thing I would do was, you know, in the film society, we do those Sunday screenings when great, you know, independent movies and just picking them was fun. You know, it's like our little film club. And then we picked the movies. We'd have 200 people there. Every weekend, lined up around a corner, and it was like just the social interaction, just selling them tickets and having to do a little bit of math, and you know, you get to see everybody touch base. Those like little incidental encounters that happen in the course of your week that are so important for just that sense of solidarity. Absolutely, and community. I would love to have a movie of mine play at that little playhouse. Wouldn't that be fun? I would just that would just be such. A joyful experience. Yeah, Julie, Julie Christie brought a print of McCabe, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, Julie Christie, she was incredible. She was flirting with me, I swear to God. Wow, I, I bet was she like, was. Ooh, I was like shivering. <laughs> I was, you know what to say. I know she probably does it with 15 men a day, but just to be one of those 15 was like, oh my God, she's just so awesome. And that movie, like, she's phenomenal. McCabe and Mrs. Miller was phenomenal. Yeah. When I was at AFI, I was a young cinematography fellow, and I was hired by Hal Ashby hmm. to uh, run all the VCRs um, during the during the shoot and actually film all the casting. I know I was this twenty year old, and I was, you know, this world opened up to me. Hal Ashby, Warren Beatty, and I would wow. watch Julie Christie and Warren Beatty as this young twenty year old wannabe filmmaker doing their scenes and I was just yeah. blown away she's one of the most beautiful women in the world and just the grace mm. and poise brilliant actor yeah really I miss her she used to see her around town once in a while yeah Julie if you're listening come on back <laughs> I miss you yeah I think she lived here for quite a while oh wow yeah so where where did you grow up I mean I'd love to hear about yeah I mean you I was born in New York and when you we, say New York you mean Manhattan York, yeah I was born in Manhattan and I understand uh, the hospital was torn down like a week after I was born. Well, and no, no, no connection, no, no connection. consequence, no. It's like it's just downhill from yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And then um, we moved out, my father said, for the rainbows, and hmm. moved to Hollywood. And I grew up in Hollywood. I went to Hollywood High School. I am a Hollywood kid. And so Did I you know s- Eve Babbitt's? No. I know that name. Oh, well, she went to Hollywood High School. She's like kind of the anti-Joan Didion, you know. She's oh really? She did a lot of partying, and she, you know, she's like that famous photo of her playing chess naked with Marcel Duchamp. Yes, yes. But she's a great oh, writer, like nice. really fun yeah. writer. But I know she went to Hollywood High School, but it would have been quite a long time before your time. Yeah, but. yeah. So I grew up in Hollywood, and it was you know roaming the streets of Hollywood, um, seeing it go through everything it's gone through it's really quite changed yeah. uh, but I grew up there and um, then I went to Los Angeles City College I wanted to be a filmmaker I grew up on a set with my father <sighs> so awesome and then I uh, enrolled in AFI I applied to the first you know I wanted to be a cinematographer I thought I wanted to 
be a cinematographer, and I did, mm. and I wanted to Who was your Haskell Wexler or somebody like that? Well, there was a lot of people that would come in and speak. Yeah. Um, Jan Kadar was the dean, and, and Danielle... Oh, I can't remember his name at this very second, of course. Yeah. Anyway, um, he produced the shop on Main Street, um, but I can't remember his last mm. name. Um, so anyway, applied to AFI... They said, I had made this little short film. Why don't you come in as a director? I said, no, I, don't. I was 20 years old. I said, I don't want to be a director. I want to be a Intimidated. I was very scared. <laughs> and then I got in, and then, of course, I wanted to be a director. And um, I shot Maya Angelou's first little short film Wow! as part of the directing What a great workshop. credit. It was really quite an experience. And, um, and then I just went on to become a script supervisor hmm. as a means of support made my own short films. Pardon me? Pay the bills Pay while the you're bills. working on your own yeah. projects. And then um, and then I worked on Hill Street Blues as a script supervisor. Oh, did you know Mark do you know Mark Frost? Yes, I from a long time ago. I haven't yeah. seen him in a hundred years. Yeah, I just ran into him a couple weeks ago. Great, great writer. Just yes, so, so such fun. a great writer. And he's you know, that was He lives here. Yes. yes, but just Botchko, what he did for TV was oh, tremendous. It was great. Well, it's David Milch's first boss. Yeah, so Botchko and Greg Hoblet hired me to direct an episode off my wow. short film, and I, my first episode or two episodes I directed were were for LA Law, and then it just my career just LA shot Law, up, and this yeah. was a time when <clears throat> few women were being hired. Yeah. To do anything. Did you feel that glass ceiling when you were trying to get these jobs, or was Absolutely. it just like skeptical, or how did it manifest? Was it just, you know? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I'll, I'll, well, I'll, I'll, I could tell you an ugly story. I, um, I would love to. I think that's important for be, people to understand. Be, and hopefully, we don't go back yeah, to that again. Without because, naming names, but one of them we were talking about actually before I did LA Law, I was. Like I said, be I was a script supervisor on Hill Street, and I had made a short film. And Greg Hoblet and Stephen Bochco hired me to direct an episode. They then were they left their jobs and went on to something else. They were fired. Yeah. And David Milch and Scott Brazil and David Ladd and someone named Jeffrey Lewis took over the show. And I had a contract. Yeah. And one day I was. This is a horrible story. This is a. But it's a. It's a Hollywood story. Yes. I went to go pick up a jacket. I was in the parking lot, and they said, come on up to the office. I said, okay. I was picking up this jacket for my mother. And they said, I said, what's up? And they said, well, we're firing you. Uh, we're letting you go. Um, on what basis, I said. They said, on the basis that you're not qualified to direct. And so they fired me. It was already me. after you've directed. No, I had not. Oh, I directed God. a short that... Bochco and Hoblet had hired me off of. They left. I had the contract. They fired me before I ever did the job and hired their location manager and a first AD who had never directed anything. My poker buddies or something probably. So it was like this boys club. And I went off in tears and had a baby, Hannah. Mm. And Greg Hoblet... And Boschko came knocking on my door when Hannah was three weeks old. Well, basically what had happened, I actually did the first 
six, seven episodes of L.A. Law as a script supervisor because nice. Hobbit said, come help me. Be the script supervisor on the show and I'll help you. Okay. Had my baby. Three weeks later, Hoblet Bochco came knocking on my door saying, we'd love you to direct show 19 of L.A. Law. So they made good on their promise. Yeah. And from there on, it was a lot of really wonderful writers and producers, males Mm -hmm. mostly, who gave me jobs. I mean, Steven Spielberg, I directed the first DreamWorks film. Hmm. did you know uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that everybody was saying, you're hiring her. Mm. You know, I have had a very successful career in television. On, I thought that on, what they did was amazing. I thought just, Absolutely. Yeah. So I did ER. John Wells hired me, um, and we came up together. I did ER, and then I did The Peacemaker and started my feature film career. And um, then Sherry Lansing hired me to direct Deep nice. Impact. And so it was a very, very fast moving train and when I became mm-hmm. a producer director I hired as many women as I could mm-hmm. and that you've that you know just paying it forward yeah yeah I directed that movie too paying it forward <laughs> pay oh, it wow. forward pay it forward oh, wow. <laughs> interesting huh yeah do you know Donna Langley Dame Donna I've Langley met her. Yeah. yes does she live here too mm-hmm. yeah yeah, her husband does building that hotel, the El Roblar, with partners. Oh, okay. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be talking about that, but that's okay. It is a, it's Ojai is just such a. It's like the Piccadilly Circus of the world. Like if you wait around long enough, everybody comes through here. Yeah, it's yeah. really fun. I know I bump into people I know here. Yeah. Um, but it's also nice and quiet, mm-hmm. and a lot of my friends here, I guess, are in the business. But I have friends here that. All right, and I love that. Yeah. You know, I love well, you have all know walks me of now. Yeah. I dug graves for six years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, now you know people from all walks of life. Absolutely. Yeah. It's important. Now, um, on the basis of sex, yes. I've had that conversation with, um, with Judith Hale Norris, who's mm-hmm. attorney, uh, staff attorney for, the head staff attorney for the 10th, U.S. District Court of Appeals, so she mm-hmm. was there for a lot of that stuff and knew, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg very well. Wow. I just thought that was a beautiful project. Like, Thank you. She was like, just that that energy. You talk about having the, the glass ceiling and what she had to overcome. That was even more of an insulated boy's world and oh what God. she went through at Harvard. And oh, yeah. Just that fierceness. She was a powerhouse. She was a warrior. and. Yeah. Meeting her, Daniel Stiefelman, her nephew, wrote the script. And so when we, when I was presented the script by my agent and now manager at the time, John Levin, uh, Robert Court producing, I immediately said yes. It was, it was like a no-brainer for me. It was like a hell yeah. yeah. I will direct this movie. I love this movie. I love her. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I just was so honored. She was gangster. She was. She was a gangster. Um, she was um, badass. And I got to meet her in a very interesting way because of Daniel, Daniel mm-hmm. being her nephew. And so when I first met her, we went out to dinner. And, you know, you're trying to develop a script and also develop a, um, a movie. And, you know, there's got to be a lot of conflict in movies. Yeah. 
and you know her finding her voice well she really always had that voice she always had that strength and that powerfulness and um so creating that a little bit of that was almost fictitious because she definitely always had her voice but you know when you meet a real life person that you're making a movie about Mm -hmm. you know you ask them questions and the first night I had dinner with her we were like it was like going on a date do you know what I mean and I asked her questions personal questions because what was really important about to me about the film was the relationship she had with her husband Marty Mm -hmm. and how they loved each other and how they supported each other and how they had a truly equal relationship and how that fostered both of their identities and careers absolutely and so you know I was asking her things like well how'd you know Marty was the one Mm. you know and she said well he's the first man that ever knew I had a brain you know (laughs) and it was just sweet it was really sweet and it was incredible working with her and one of the most wonderful experiences (laughs) I had was the movie had a different ending than it did um so I wanted to change the ending. I wanted to have the young Felicity, the young who is RBG. The, oh, she was so good. She's right. so beautiful. Oh, my gosh. So She's gorgeous. Just like, like to just, you know, just get you into the, the story to have somebody that's so watchable. Like Yes. That. Yeah. And so I wanted to have the young RBG walking up the stairs to her future. Mm. And so I had this idea, you know, standing in front. I, I said, we've got to have... Madam Justice walk up the stairs, and that's how the movie should end. Mm -hmm. And so I I said, I wrote her a letter and asked her if she would appear in the movie, and she said yes. Okay, so she has a very busy schedule. I can imagine. Right, and so when I was filming that scene, you know, I had her walking up the stairs like twice, and the focus puller blew it, Uh and... You know, it was such a beautiful shot. And I said, "Um, could I have one more take, Madam Justice? And she said, just one more. (laughs) (laughs) Just like an actor. I'll only give you one. Anyway, so it was so beautiful. And and it was life-changing working on that film and knowing her and and knowing that, I, I, you know, you when you are making a film about someone who has changed the world in such a significant mm-hmm. and powerful way, you really want to do justice to the justice. Yeah. And I would say so that it did feel like a lot of burden. It huh? was a. It did feel. I. It did feel like pressure. But once again, you can't work that way. I mean, mm-hmm. actually, you can work with a lot of fear. Fear is a great motivator. Yeah. But it can't cripple you. You know, you have to... Can't be to, afraid to take chances. Yeah, and, you've got to yeah. take risks. Can't play it safe, yeah. Yeah, you've got to run up those stairs. Yeah. And not not timidly. You've got to, like, powerfully tell your stories with yeah. conviction. Anyway, it was a great experience. Well, back to Dobbs. You know, she, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, always said that Roe v. Wade was not the case to settle abortion right. rights on. It was the Air Force captain... So I was in the Air Force, and I remember, oh. you know, that that was like nobody, because if I recall the story correctly, it was a woman who was told she would have to get an abortion. Oh. <clears throat> and she didn't want to get an abortion, but the fact that they made that on the basis of her sex, that determination. So rather than a privacy issue, which 
the justices love to pry into people's privacy. That's not going to be a barrier for Clarence Thomas or somebody like that. <laughs> but the work, but the you know workplace, the workplace discriminations, that was that would have been much much more difficult for them to dismantle. Yeah. Yes. So hopefully there's another case burbling its way up through the ether that they can settle something like that on and maybe we can just get past this because it feels so regressive. I hope so, but I'm not sure with this with this court. Wow. This court is... Uh, they don't feel legitimate. Not, they, not Amy Coney Barron getting shoved in there in the last three weeks. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, yeah, with Merrick Garland not being approved all yeah, during both that coming time. and going. Yes, they it feel was, like yeah. Trump could get one justice, not three. Not three. It's it's a very scary time for America and the world. It yeah. really is, and uh, yes, this this court um, almost feels. I don't want to be controversial, but almost feels illegitimate. Yeah. And, um, well, just how they got there. Just how they got there. And and the fact that they were screened from the get-go is the other thing. It is not their their body of jurisprudence that they were selected for. It's the Federal Society had picked these people out and groomed them since they were coming yes. right, out of, right out of their undergraduate yes. degrees. Yeah. That's going to be uh, take a long time to, yeah. to fix that. So it was a very different court that I observed when I was prepping my film. Mm-hmm. Um, so you must have felt personally invested in what was I, going on. I felt shattered. <laughs> yeah. And I know our... So you don't want to have a beer with Brett Kavanaugh? <laughs> <laughs> no, not even a hello. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no. Uh, but I, I, I can only imagine how wonderful it was when Marty was alive. Uh, mm. the, the wives would have lunches every month and he was the only man and he was a great cook and so he would cook them all lunches hmm. once a month and when he died the wives made a book called um, God, what was it called? Justice Supreme I think hmm. and um, it was a book of his recipes oh, fun. And, and sayings of um, you know, from the wives and from his family, his daughter said, "Daddy does the cooking, mommy does the thinking." <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, when we met, when I brought Felicity and Army Hammer to meet her in her office, she gave him this book oh. and of recipes. And then during the shoot, at one point, he cooked six different. Recipes, recipes from the book? From the book for nice. us. And it was, you, you kind of felt that, you know, he was in the room. Yeah. And um, you could see what she ate, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in her lifetime that, uh, with him. Yeah, to Amazing. her experience. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been, well, gone over an hour, believe it or not. I feel bad for keeping you here so long. Oh, no. But what, what else... Um, you know, with this coming season, is there anything you want people to kind of keep an eye out for? Or maybe, I mean, anything you can kind of tease out there, a little Easter egg or something? Well, and, well, there's just so much. I mean, there's it is, so yeah. much it that happens. It covers the waterfront. It covers the waterfront. And so I don't know about giving away any of it, but 
I know that the you know we talk about the truth a lot mm-hmm. in our show and the truth. Um, what does it even mean anymore? What does it even mean? This nihilism and, that's this low simmer nihilism. Just yes. people just don't care anymore. It's scary, and it's the truth has become an endangered species. Yeah, and so I hope people look at the show and see have fun watching it but also mm-hmm. yeah you, know, you don't think forget to entertain you don't yeah. for, you don't forget to make it I want gripping them, yeah a feel ripping something. good yarn i think yeah. it really reflects what's happening yeah. in our world today on on many levels and so you know it's the state of journalism it's billionaires taking over hmm. uh and not being who they who we yeah. think they are yeah. Well, John Hamm's such a great actor. I just he's really, great. He just enjoy. We had a great him. time. I mean, all our cast are extraordinary. They are. Mm-hmm. It's a joy coming to work and getting on the floor and bringing it to life. Well, I like seeing Mark Duplass on that show because he is like you know mumblecore <laughs> chief. He's like rapping as he's doing his own shoots and setups and man, he's done everything. And then he gets to work on a project like this where he can focus on being an actor. Yeah, it's, it's like wonderful. he's really like what a what a career he has had. He's a wonderful actor and his and <clears throat> I, I, and he's great on the show and and I did just see his indie film Biosphere or Sterling Brown and it's really fun if you can catch it. It's hmm, also Biosphere. you know it's called Biosphere. Check it out. It's really fun. Um, but anyway, I hope everyone enjoys the morning show who sees it. And I'm sure they will. And has a good time. Thanks, Mimi. Okay, thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Brett Bradigan. Just thinking out loud. So, being able to have somebody of Mimi's stature, somebody at the top of their game, and one of the most challenging industries in the world, in our own backyard here in Ojai. Uh, if you're ever wondering why I love this place, it's about as good a place to start as any. Another reason is just the kind of conversations that we have. I got to talk about, you know, David Milch, who I just regard as a, one of the a national treasure, and his memoir about Alzheimer's and his career and being in the business, being a degenerate gambler who would lose millions and who would, uh, you know, he's a lifelong heroin addict, although I think he was on, what's the drug, the uh, methadone for many, many years. But just these people who are so tortured and what an edge it gives them. Like I mentioned, the crooked timber of humanity. I think it is like that's how we come to understand each other is not through all the excellence and the higher elevated qualities, but through our weaknesses. It's like that Leonard Cohen song. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And you'll see that in this show, the morning show. They really Mimi does a wonderful job of showing people at their vulnerable fragilities and how that connects all of us. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ohio Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.